Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 21. As we continue to make our way, look and live is the title of the message. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had your kids ask the question, are we there yet? Maybe or maybe your spouse or maybe you're that person. Finding annoying ways to display their frustration with the long journey. He touched me. She's looking at me. Maybe you've been there as well. Impatience is probably an ailment that we all struggle with. Amen? Amen. And when it rears up its ugly head, we respond to impatience in ways that are very unhelpful and sometimes devastating to ourselves and to others. Well, last week we read how Moses' anger and his partial disobedience led to the devastating consequence of forfeiting his right to enter into the promised land. Forty years of leading these people And he does not get to see the promised land. Allowing his anger to overcome him, Moses failed to glorify Yahweh. However, the Lord still demonstrated his holiness by providing water for the thirsty, rebellious uh, Israelites and by also pronouncing judgment on both Moses and Aaron. And last week we saw Aaron's death. But as we come to today's passage, we read that the Hebrew children are now almost ready for the final leg of their journey to the promised land. After 40 years of wandering the wilderness, the children of the original Hebrew slaves, remember this, this is the children of the original Hebrew slaves, they have experienced victory now over their enemies. We're going to look at Numbers 21. We're going to read the first three verses. Those are here on the monitor, but I encourage you again, follow along in your Bible and the scripture. It says in Numbers chapter 21, that verse 1, he says, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that the Israelites were coming by the way of the Athram, he fought against Israel, and he took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and he gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again to open your word and to read those things that happened in the distant lands to a people very far, far from us, from a culture foreign to us. But yet it's here for examples for our instruction. So help us as we do the work of reading through your scripture, interpreting your scripture, and then as we apply it as your Holy Spirit gives us utterance. I pray that you be with us. Let us know the difference between your word, your truth, and just my mere opinion. Father, filter that through. And Lord, I pray above all else, Lord, that we would respond to your Spirit's work in our life. Amen. Now, as you and I come to the 21st chapters of Numbers, 40 years have passed. The people are moving closer to the border of several nations that they must pass through in order to enter into the promised land. As you can see in our opening passage, the king of Arad tries a preemptive strike against the Hebrew children, but are defeated 
and destroyed. Now it seems like this new generation of Israelites, they're full of vigor and courage. And they make a vow to the Lord by saying, hey, Lord, if, if, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Now, what's, in, what's, what's encouraging about that one line, that vow, is you have to remember their parents are the ones that said, oh, we cannot beat these people. We are like grass or we're like grasshoppers to them. These are the very children that they said would be devoured by these people. But now these children have grown up and they're now a military might. And they say, Lord, go with us and we will defeat and we will do what our parents feared to do. So Yahweh hears. He accepts their vow. And he honors it and he providentially aids them in their victory. Two more times in this chapter, we read of the Hebrew children gaining victory over their enemies. Moses records these victories over these three kings in chapter 21 and verse 3. The Lord heeded the voice of Israel, gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them their city's destruction. In verse 24, if you're just perusing it with me, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and they took possession and took all the cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites. In verse 31, Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Verse 32, they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who lived there. And in verse 35, they possessed the land. They are now seeing seeing the fruits of their labors and their long journey. Finally, after 40 years, they are experiencing victory and forward progress. This chapter also records their travels in the wilderness, and it gives us some of the cities and some of the towns they visited, along with Yahweh's provision of water once again at a well of beer. Not beer, that's not what you think. It's not like he took them to a well of beer, but they sing a song, Oh, Spring Up, O Well. Now, I know there's some others who will see a keg and say the same thing, but in this case, it is water. So don't get too excited, some of you uh, Baptists out there. However, not everything in this chapter is rosy. In the midst of these victories and the provisions of God, once again, old habits and attitudes rise up and bite them literally. So with that, let's go to verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people, look at this, became impatient on the way. The people became impatient on the way. Like most immature children, they once again have trouble controlling their emotions. Like most children on a long journey, they are becoming bored and annoyed at how much time it takes to reach their destination. I think if we go in here, there's a map here I'd like to share with you here on the monitor. If we can go to that real quickly. And in here you'll see their travels. I know it's a little bit distorted there. But if you can see, there's kind of the land there, kind of what you might know as the Sinai Peninsula today, and then going up to Israel. Some of that area is where, uh, where, where Iran, and, or, or not Iran, but Iraq, some of the other Saudi Arabia is today. And you'll see that there's a line. You'll see that they're traveling. They go up to the wilderness of Zin. And if you see that word, it says wilderness of Zin. You see the Negev. That's where they were at that time. And then you see Arad, where they beat that king. He's several cities up. 
They go there and they make their way to Edom, but then they wind up having to go back down to what's called the Red Sea, the tip of the Red Sea, and then they start to make their way up on the other side of Edom. Remember, Edom was the children of Esau, and last week we saw that Edom said, no, you cannot go through our land through the king's highway. You must go around, and so they do so, and you'll see they're going to make their way to the promised land, not through the quickest way, but through a roundabout way. And there you'll see some of the cities, and as you see Moab and some of the others, the places where they defeated some of the kings, and they begin to take, uh, take uh, some of the cities and start to possess some of the land. But as you see, they're not making a straight way up to where you see Canaan there at the top of your monitor. No, they're going all the way around. For 40 years, they've been traveling that other area, the wilderness of Zin. Now they're finally making the way, but they're still, it is slow progress. And they're just becoming impatient. You and I can understand that. Uh, we understand that going to work, we become impatient. We're just driving down the street sometimes. Just trying to get down to the circle of orange sometimes and getting around there is just, it's just a nightmare. It's just easily become impatient. And that's what we see here. And like most immature children who struggle to control their emotions, they begin to lash out against authority and complain. So read with me silently at verse 5. Not only did they become impatient, but it says in verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Very clearly. They spoke against God and Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now this time, Scripture clearly states the object of their impatience is God and Moses. Once again, they accuse God and Moses of evil motives and intentions. You brought us out of Egypt only to die. They again state some of the obvious and they forget God's uh, uh, provision. There's no, no food and water, but yet here they are taking cities where there's wells and other things. But they expose their ungratefulness. We loathe this worthless food that you've been giving us these last 40 years, this, the manna. We loathe this food. We're tired of this journey. We're tired of this trip. You and I have to understand that once again, Sin raises its ugly head, forgetting all the life lessons that they have learned during the past 40 years. The past of, of their parents' sin and of God's miraculous provision, they succumb to their selfish sinfulness, sel uh, sinful selfishness. And they charge Yahweh and Moses with, listen to this, child abuse. If you're my father, if God, you're the God of our father, Moses, if you're our leader, and they would use that term father, why have you abused us in this way? Maybe your children have done something similar. Oh, if you loved us, you wouldn't give us this to eat. Oh, if you loved us, we would have this. Why are you doing this? That's what they're accusing God really of, child abuse. You don't know what's best for us. Leave us, back. why don't you send us back into Egypt? But Jesus explained the spiritual truth in Matthew 7, 7 about our Father. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be what? 
opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Of course we wouldn't do that. Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? No, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your father, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask it? God knows what you and I need. And what they're charging here is God is not a good father. He is not providing for their needs. But here's a spiritual truth. Here's an application. You'll find it here on the monitor. In this teaching that Jesus is showing us, what the, 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 what the Israelites are missing is that there is a spiritual promise that the Father will provide for his children all that they need to survive and flourish. Get that. The Father will provide for his children all that they need to survive and flourish. You must grasp this. You and I do not need to despair, to doubt, or debate his provision and protection. Grab this. God is faithful. And maybe we just need to stop there and grab that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're despairing of God's provision in your life. Maybe you're doubting his, wood, his wisdom or his goodness. You're debating God's plan and calling for your life, his purposes. But let me share with you that God will give you all that you need. He will supply it out of his riches. And I know some of you have a more difficult life, a more difficult calling than many of us here today. But let me call you, whether you're in poverty or you're in riches, trust in the God who is faithful. Each and every time that we've read here in, this, in Numbers of Israel failing or whether it was in Exodus, each and every time it's because they forgot the goodness and wisdom of God. They doubted who he was. They debated who he was and what he was doing in their life. Will this uprising, just like the previous one, bring Yahweh's swift judgment in verse 6? Read with me, Numbers 21, verse 6. Then the Lord, it says, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Their complaints once again brings death, this time through what is described as fiery serpents, so-called because the snake bites seem to inflict a fiery inflammation. And just as Yahweh delivers judgment against those who sin against him, he offers salvation to those who call upon him in mercy. Follow along me as we continue. So they, they, they charge God with child abuse. They charge Moses with, with wrong leadership. God's once again, he sends a, a judgment that takes place of snakes that are coming out from the woodwork, coming out from the bushes and the stones, and they're, they're biting the people. The people are in such pain. They're crying out. They're dying. Look what we see. In verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, this is so important. We have sinned. Boy, how much more different your life would be if you would understand that. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8. 
And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. What a strange, strange story. But this strange event records a cycle. Now, before we go on to the bronze serpent and the strangeness of it, but I want you to see that there's a cycle playing off in here. And it's really the gospel. If we can go to it on our monitor here, it's a cycle that's repeated throughout human history. There is sin. We rebel against God. We question him. We doubt him. We debate him. The judgment of God comes on sinners for the penalty of sin is what? Death. Now in our case, it's eternal death. It's a spiritual death and also a physical death. But then we see that there's confession of sin. And when God's people confess sin, what does he say? There's intercession. Now in this case, it's Moses. For you and I, it's Jesus Christ. But when there's intercession, God hears that confession. He hears that repentance and he brings and provides a way of atonement that leads to healing. Sin, judgment, confession, intercession, atonement, and healing. The people sin against God. God brings the judgment. The people confess their sin. The priest intercedes on their behalf. Then God provides the atonement and the healing. And this atonement and healing, now this is what's interesting. The healing and atonement come in the shape of a bronze serpent that's placed on a pole. You can almost, what, isn't, that a medical, isn't that the medical, uh, a medical symbol? I don't think it's a bronze serpent, but I think it's like a serpent on a, on a pole. I, I, don't, I, I have to figure out why that is. I wonder if it's the same... Oh, okay, it's from Hermes staff. All right. So it's not exactly, but it's kind of interesting. But what I thought was interesting in this is that the, that the atonement and healing come in the shape of that in which is the case of their suffering. The Bible project remarks that this strange symbol is used as both God's judgment, the fiery serpent, and as a source of life. Look and you will live. All who looked upon the symbol would find life and healing. Now, what I found was interesting is that Yahweh would make the symbol in the shape of the object of his wrath. Think of it again. The symbol of the hope and healing of the atonement was shaped in the object of his wrath. What was the object of his wrath? The snakes that he sent. That was his wrath against the people. And uh, it's the object of his race, snakes, and that the healing came not from offering a sacrifice. It was not from going to the tabernacle. It was not through the priest uh, bringing in the, the incense, but they were to look upon a snake on a pole. That was the healing. That was the atonement. To be healed, each person would have to look upon a symbol. Listen to this. That they would have to look upon a symbol of that which inflicted them with poison. And each time, I believe, looking at that, it would remind them of why they are suffering. In other words, my suffering is because of my own sin and not because of someone else. The command for healing was simple. Look 
and live. Look and live. There is no special incantation. There is no special fragrance. There is no potion. There is no medical uh, solution here. Just look and live. How simple. God is simple. Just look and you will live. You will be healed. Now, you can imagine everyone who was bitten made their way to this symbol of healing. Wouldn't you expect they would bring family members. They would be carrying others who may, uh, who may have been bitten so that they may look and live, whether you were bitten or yourself. You would make sure that friends and neighbors could find healing from their tormenting pain and imminent death. Just come, I'll, I'll carry you. All you'll have to do is, is just look and you can live. Some may have doubted or procrastinated or even refuse to do such a simple task. Some may even have died out of their own obstinance and pride. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it does tell us, look and live. Now unfortunately, this symbol of hope eventually became a stumbling block to the Israelites. As later they would begin to worship it and making offerings. In 2 Kings chapter 18, it's here on the monitor, we read that when Hezekiah, the king of Judah, ascended to the throne, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and he broke the pillars and he cut down the Asherah, which, which was a, a fertility pole which they would give to one of the gods. But look at here. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people had been made an offering to it. And it was called Nehishtan. So they took that symbol of hope and they kept it for those centuries. Hundreds of years later, you find the people now still coming to it, thinking that if they were to look, that they would live. Bringing offerings and worshiping a symbol that God had gave them hundreds of years before. It had become a mystical object that the people worshiped. So King Hezekiah gave it a derogatory name that means a thing of brass. In other words, he says, this is not something wonderful. This is not something beautiful. This is not something you ought to offer to in worship. It's a nehushtan. It's a, it's a thing of brass. He's bringing them to, it's just something simple. He destroys it, indicating that though it once, a, it once was a symbol of hope and healing, it no longer had any power. Now, as you and I consider this passage, it is important for us to understand how does this serve as an example for our instructions? How, what do you and I do with this strange story of people who are bitten by fiery snakes? And then God says, well, put up a pole and put a little copper snake around it. And tell everyone to come to this front of this, where it was, maybe front of the tabernacle, I don't know, front of the people. And just tell people not to, to just to walk by it and look. They don't have to bow down to it. They don't have to touch it. They don't have to drink from some type of, uh, 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 some potion from it. They just have to look at it. Just walk by it, glance at it, and they would be healed. What do you and I do with something like that? Well, the good news, it's simple. And it's simple because Jesus gave us the answer of how this serves as an instruction 
or as an example for our instructions today. And we saw it in our scripture reading with Landon earlier in John chapter 3, verse 14. And I believe that's also here in our monitor if we could. And we read, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If we can just keep that up there for a moment. What I'm sharing with you is Jesus is saying that the way that that is an example for our instructions today is for our atonement, for our healing today from our suffering, from our pain, from our torment, all you need to do is look and live. But the object is so much different. Pastor John MacArthur writes that this is a veiled prediction of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus referred to the story of where the Israelite people who looked at the serpent lifted up by Moses were healed. The point of this illustration or analogy is in the lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole so that all who looked on it might live physically, he writes, those who look to Jesus who was also lifted up on the cross will live spiritually and eternally. In other words, this was a symbol that brought atonement and brought healing to an ancient people, but yet it also was a symbol, it was something that pointed to a great reality, that you and I needed to be rescued as well. You and I also need to look and live. We also need atonement. What we find here in Numbers is that God is not only healing his children, but he's also revealing how he will atone for the sins of all of his children in the future and in the past. This is also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, where Yahweh pronounces concerning the Messiah, the Savior, the promised one, when he says, Behold, my servant shall, be, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, you, as you, you and I know, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He was crucified. He bore our sins upon his body. His blood was poured out for our atonement. His beatings and his tortures brought us peace with God. And it's by looking to Jesus, we find eternal life. And once again, it's the object of God's wrath is the symbol for the hope of healing today. Once again, they had to look at a serpent, a fiery serpent, to be healed. And once again, God reminds us that the way you and I find healing is by looking at the object of God's wrath. And what was the object of God's wrath for you and I? Jesus on the cross, in which God poured out his wrath on his son. So when you and I look at a cross, you and I are reminded that that was reserved for criminals, for traitors, not for the Son of God, not for the holy and pure. But yet God sent his son and put him on the cross who bore our penalty. So when you and I see the cross, we are reminded we have sinned. We need to call out to a holy God 
And he says, look and live. We sung earlier, how deep is the father's love for his children? Let me share it with you. It's deep enough that he sent his son to die for his children. How amazing is God's grace we sung earlier. Well, we see that undeservingly Jesus atones for our sin by bearing God's wrath. Jesus cries, it is finished as God accepts his sacrifice as our substitute. Scripture informs us that if you and I, if that if we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, that God will hear our cry. And you say, what does that mean to confess and repent? It's to acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. That you are a sinner. And that you are deserving of death. And that's the problem. Most people think that they're good people. They don't recognize that, they, they, that they're a sinner. They don't, think, they don't think they even need a savior. At least not one like Christ. To repent means to turn from our dead works. To repent from our dead works recognizes that going to church, giving money, doing good things does not earn your way into heaven. For all come short of the glory of God. It's recognizing that the way that you've been doing it is futile. And it's turning and putting our trust in God. To give you an example, think if that if you were a doctor or a healer of ancient Israel, these fiery serpents are coming out and biting people, young and old alike. And they're coming to you and they're burning with pain as they're inflamed and they're dying. Can you imagine a doctor saying, well, let me do this for you. Well, let me give you this potion. Let me give you this shot. Maybe if you stood up, maybe and walked around, maybe if you put your, your feet above your heart, maybe we can bleed you a little bit. And all through the time, Moses is saying, no, look and live. Look and live. And someone says, well, maybe I ought to try that. No, no, don't, that, that's too simple. We need to do something else. Let's go to the, let's go to the temple or the tabernacle and let's do a sacrifice. Let's ask uh, uh, the, 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 the priest to do a, a, a sacrifice for us. Doesn't work. Just look. Live. Jesus informs us that we confess and repent ourselves that God will hear our cry. His command then is to look to Jesus and we will live. Atonement for our sin comes in the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. The Bible promises this in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Could you imagine this? Could you imagine a father or a mother, or maybe a family member or a friend, is seeing someone they loved is bitten by that fiery serpent? Moses' call comes out, look and live at this serpent. And you say, well, I'll take him tomorrow. I'll take him in a couple days. I've got some stuff I'm doing here. Or maybe you refuse to drag them, to carry them. Maybe you yourself says in your pride, wait, I can, I, I can wait this out. And they die, but you and I do that all the time. Instead of sharing with our friends and family, look and live. 
We just allow them to try to solve and atone for their sins and their shame and guilt in their own way. But you and I need to be carrying them. We need to be dragging them. We cannot save them. That will not save them. The only thing that will bring them to Christ is if they will willingly look and live. But we must do so. Now to the world, this call, this command is as strange as those that were given in Numbers 21. Who wondered, who looked and wondered at Moses. They saw what he was building and they're saying, what in the world is he doing? The answer to their pain and suffering is to look at a sculpture of a serpent on a pole and be healed. What in the world? Yet the apostle Peter declares in Acts 4 verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else but in Christ. For there is no other name under heaven, speaking of Jesus, given among men whereby we may be saved. In other words, just as the ancient Hebrew children were told to look at the serpent and live, you and I are called to look at Jesus and live. William Ogden, in 1887, wrote a wonderful hymn called Look and Live. It's here on the monitor. Look at it. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you what? Say it with me. Look and live. It is only that you look and live. Have you looked this morning? And are you living Who in your immediate family has not yet looked and lived? Who in your friendships, your sphere of influence, have you yet to say, look and live? This is the gospel. Look and live. The good news of Jesus Christ, that all who look to him will find eternal life. And like the ancient Hebrew children, you and I need to come with confession and repentance, recognizing that we need a Savior. Once again, the world does not know that they need a Savior, or they're looking to that which does not save. We need to look for one who is atoned for our sin once for all, who has earned our righteousness and makes us right with God. You and I need to proclaim this good news to our families and friends that suffer from the same fate. They need to understand their need of a Savior and that God has already provided an atonement for their ailments. Do not work for it. Do not try to do it on your own. Just look and live. It's provided for you. It's there. It's high and lifted up. You do not have to stand on someone else's shoulders. You do not have to stand on a rock or climb a tree. You must look and live. So simple, but so powerful. Look on the object of God's wrath and you will be healed. Let me tell you, the world rejects this message. It offers different saviors and different ways of atonement. It says, look to aestheticism or beauty and live in the beauty that surrounds you. It cries, look to consumerism and live in the luxury that you deserve. Look to agnosticism and live in blissful ignorance. Look to altruism, doing good things and live to serve others. 
Look to a moralism, a life that has no morals, and live to indulge your passions and desires. Look to anarchism and live by your own rules. Look to emotionalism and live according to your feelings. Live to environmentalism and live in a cure, clean and pure planet, worshiping her. Look to expressionism and live as who you believe you are. Now we could go on for days and not exhaust all the ways that we look for salvation in things that end, that in the end bring us nothing but death and eternal separation from God. We do not need a political savior. You do not need a financial savior. You do not need a relationship uh, savior. You need a savior who can atone for your sins. We're all looking for something. We're looking for a symbol. We're looking for a religion. We're looking for a way to atone for our sins that drown out the shame and the guilt that you and I carry with ourselves at all times. The world has the same shame and guilt. Now they do different ways to try to atone for it. One, they try to deny that it exists, but that's, that's useless. They try to blame it on others. It's on my parents. But again, that doesn't suffice. They try to drink it and drown it away or use pleasure experiments, live for other things. They try to forget it. But in the end, shame and guilt drown all of us. And things may work for a bit. But in the end, we recognize that there's no atonement unless we look and live. Satan himself, that ancient adversary of the creator of the universe, also puts in his two cents worth by whispering in your ear to look and see how God is not providing for your needs and wants. Don't look and live. Look to yourself. Look to what you need. Look for yourself. Live for yourself. Satan's desire is for you to doubt the goodness and wisdom of God's word, God's goodness and love for you. Let me plead with you this morning. Do not fall to his devices as the Hebrew children did and charged God with child abuse. But look and live. Lift your eyes to the cross of Christ and find life. Follow, let us follow the words of the writer of Hebrews who proclaimed in Hebrews chapter 1, 12, 1 and 2. It's here on the monitor, I believe. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I want to say, I understand there are many of you here today that you are walking around with weights that are tied to you that are just keeping you so down to earth that the things of heaven seem so far away. There are some of you in which sin clings so closely you do not feel that you can even breathe because of it. But he says, let us run with race or run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us not be like the Hebrew children that became impatient because the journey was too long. But what does he say? Looking 
Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame. He became the object of God's wrath. But is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isaiah 52. He's now not only high and exalted on the cross. But now he's high and exalted at the throne room of God. Look and live. Let me end with this. Stay with me. In your sorrow, look to Jesus and live. In your pain and suffering now, in the here and now, look to Jesus and live. In your tribulations and trials, look to Jesus and live. In your temptations and in your failures, look to Jesus and in your live. In your wants, in your victories, look to Jesus and live. If you're here this morning, look to Jesus and live. Share that with all around. It's a message that I give. The song goes on to say, life is offered unto you, hallelujah. Eternal life thy soul shall have. And it ends with the wonderful words, look to Jesus who alone can save. Every head bow, every head closed, the worship team comes up. My message is simple. Look and live. Look to Jesus, my friend, and live. Wherever you are in your pain, in your suffering, in your doubts, in your debates, look to Jesus and live. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for once again giving us examples that are for our instructions. And may we grasp this from the story of Numbers 21. That Father, that you hear the prayer of sinners who call out in confession and repentance. Hear our cry and we thank you for those who have done that this morning. If there's any here that has not done so, but Father, I pray that they would cry out this morning, that they would look and live. And we rejoice in the gospel. May it give us the strength to endure our race, our journey in sanctification with patience. Knowing that we have a good, loving Father who meets all of our needs as long as we look and live. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.